2,000 years ago, something happened. Something happened that shook a city and then shook a nation and eventually changed the world. Something happened. Go ahead and say it with me. Something happened. Something happened that shifted a worldview that had existed for thousands of years. Something happened that sparked a message about a man. 2,000 years ago, on a morning like this, on the other side of the world, for the very first time, these words were uttered, He is risen. What happened is, that a man clothed in white spoke these words to bewildered women who had come to a garden tomb to see a dead man, but could not find him. Instead, they heard these words, do not be amazed, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified, he has risen. And this was the news that became the good news, the gospel. All right, we got four claps from the. Somebody's trying. I'm Eastern. I'm here to clap. This news became the good news, the gospel. Uh, make no mistake, this is the cry of Christianity that He is risen. Come on, somebody say it again. He is risen. This is the cry of Christianity. Not love your neighbor as yourself. Not. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. All of those are true, but those ethical imperatives, those, those golden rule things, those, those commands that are so meaningful to us, the only reason why they are so meaningful, the reason why they have such substance and such strength is because everything that Jesus said is founded upon the fact that Jesus is not dead. Anybody can say neat things, but the cry of Christianity isn't, he said neat things. The cry of Christianity is, he is alive. Therefore, we listen to the things that he said. He said uh, last week that, or two weeks ago that no other religion on the planet, no philosophy on the planet adores and worships and deifies a man who was crucified, a man who suffered the most painful and indignant dehumanizing event designed by man, but Christianity. But the reason why we adore and we worship a man who was crucified because we are also, we are also, I, gotta, I know this sounds like chest thumping. I'm not thumping my chest. I'm trying to thump his. We are also the only philosophy religion, group of people on the planet that claim as our Lord one who was dead but is now alive. Buddha's body is cremated and his relics are placed in various monuments. Muhammad is buried in the mosque of the prophet in the city of Medina. Joseph Smith is buried somewhere in Illinois. L. Ron Hubbard was cremated and his ashes, ashes scattered in the Pacific Ocean. But Christianity claims as her Lord, one who was crucified and was raised to life three days later because God raised him. Releasing him from the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in death's power. Not only is this the cry of Christianity, it is the core of our faith. We are unapologetic. Just lay it all out there. Do you know why? I'll do this one joke once a year. Do you know why we do Easter eggs on Easter Sunday? Do you know why? Because all our eggs are in this basket. I thought it was better than that. Thank you. Dr. Zepp thought it was funny. He likes my joke. All of our eggs are in this basket. What do you mean, Dav? I mean, every, it's it. Every single thing that we cling to regarding our faith is, is, a, is hung on this one thing. 
Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So essential to our faith is this claim that the Apostle Paul made it very clear in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 through 19. He said, Paul said this, if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, understand, I make no reservation, no apology about just laying this all out there. Everything is on this. There's not, there, there is no backup. There's not like, well, then, there, then there's also this and also this. No, there's this. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And see, we're so certain of it, we can't contain our joy. <laughs> but let's just pretend that we're asking a serious question here. I mean, that we're trying to. It, Paul said, if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, here's what Paul said, our preaching is vain and useless. He said, your faith is vain and useless. Then he said, we are all lying about God. And we are all still under the power of sin and that everyone who has died with hope in Christ is lost. Further, Paul says, if Christ is not risen, then Christians are the most miserable people on earth. Public service announcement, some Christians should stop living like Jesus did not rise from the dead. Back to the notes. But if he has risen, then our message is true. And not only is it true, it is absolutely necessary. If he has risen, then we have no choice but to speak of the things we have seen and heard and felt and believed. We, if it is true, it is not only just true, it is absolutely necessary and there is no other option. If it is true, then it makes sense that people for generations and generations have given their lives in service of this one message. Jesus Christ is alive. If it's true, then it only makes sense for us to for us to sing, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. Not because you were a nice guy who lived a long time ago, but because you died for me, but you were raised from the dead and you live forevermore. There's only one truth to live for if Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This is an edge. It really is A or B. If Jesus Christ has been risen, then our faith is true and necessary. Then we know what is true about God. And we also know this. We have been freed from the, from the power of sin and death. And we have, we have certain and eternal hope in Jesus Christ if he is risen. And if he is risen then we also know this, nothing is impossible. We're going to talk more about what I'm saying next week, but here's a little heads up. If he has risen, nothing is impossible. Because if he said, I'm going to be handed over to death, I'm going to be killed, crucified, but I will rise three days later. If he said, I will rise, and he did, then he keeps his word. And what he said is, I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. He said, he who believes in me, though he, though he dies, will not die, but have everlasting life. I am the resurrection and the life. What he said was, if you, have, if you believe in me, I have defeated death for you. If, and even if your physical person dies, you will have eternal life with me. Furthermore, he said, I'm coming back. I'm, he's coming back. We've got to talk about this next week. The church needs a fresh embrace of a, of a robust, cling, clinging hope to his return. The church, has, the church has only been effective and fervent and powerful and faithful when she remembers he's coming. But that's next week. We're in second service now, so I'm trying not to squeeze in my time. One more thing, though. I'll say this now. If he has been raised from the dead, then we do not grieve like those who have no hope. I want to say this on this Easter Sunday morning, recognizing that both in both, in both of our services, there are people who have lost loved ones. Even recently, and I suppose if you've lost a loved one, it always seems recent. 
So I see my brother and friend, Sean, and I say, Sean, remember on Easter Sunday, you may grieve, but not like those without hope. Because there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem that says you will see dad again. And while, it, while, and while the aftertaste is not still as fresh, I could say the same thing to my friend Jeremy Carson. That your dad loves you and he's proud of you and he'll, he'll see him. Finish the race. Finish this race. There's a long race in front of you. Finish it. Finish it for Jesus, but also knowing this, you'll see dad again. Finish, finish what he started. I'll help you. We'll do it. My dad, he's got a lot to catch up on with Evan. A lot to catch up on. A lot of stories to tell. This is not a service about that. But friends, we can't skip by this. If Jesus Christ defeated death, that means that death has been defeated. And that death has not separated you from those who have gone before you. He is risen. Somebody say it with me. He is risen indeed. Praise the Lord. So it really, friends, everything rests on this one question. Where is the dead man? Ben, have we uploaded the rhetorical slide yet? It's all right. Let's try it again. I'm going to tell you. Just wait. Everything rests on the answer to this question. We got to, you've got to stare at this question. Where is the dead man? And we can, we can answer with enthusiasm and emotion, but let's answer with evidence. Are you ready? To answer with evidence, we don't, we don't have to necessarily presume that everything written in the gospel accounts is, is divinely inspired. I said we don't have to assume it is divinely inspired. We don't necessarily have to come to the Bible with a particularly religious inclination. To, ask, to, to examine this evidence, all we need to do is acknowledge, where that Bible? All we need to do is acknowledge that this is actually in my hands, that it's real. Meaning, we acknowledge that these are real documents written by real people to real people at a real time. That's all we have to do. We don't even have to assume that everything written is true. All we need to understand is that, that they claimed everything that was written was true. It was written by people to real people at a real time when other people could have seen it and that they said this is true. Beyond that, we'll look at other facts and reason and evidence and just take it everything all together. The first thing we have, to, we have to ask and answer is this. We have to ask and answer if Jesus of Nazareth actually lived and died. <laughs> it's going to keep happening. That's all right. I don't want to hinder anybody's joy or faith. Last thing. But we, the last thing I want to do is that. But we have, did Jesus of Nazareth live and die? Well, Every single, every, all of the New Testament documents. Now, the New Testament is not one book. It's 29. They didn't get together and all write them down at the same time. These are, these are 29 different documents. Every single one of them attests to this fact. Jesus of Nazareth lived and died and was crucified. Now, why is that important? You say, well, I don't really think it's very religious. I'll, okay, fine. All you have to do is say this, that, that there, are, there were 29 documents written by real people to real people in real time that attested to the life and death of Jesus in their time. Someone say in their time. That means that it was time. It was, that, means, that means they could have in their time said this is not right. They could have, they could have invented hashtag fake news 2,000 years ago. But nobody did. It was their, the gospel accounts were never rejected in their claims about Jesus Christ, that he lived and died. 
Historically, we have all these documents that at the time that no one, that they, these were never rejected until many, many, many centuries later as a last ditch effort to try to resist the claims of Christianity. Are there, okay, are there secular records of the life and death of Jesus outside of the pages of the Bible? Sure. There are at least two very prominent, and probably more, but at least two prominent his, his, historians. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian who would not be a big fan of Jesus. Okay? Josephus, Joseph, he, rec, he, he records the life and death of Jesus and that he was crucified. Then there was a Roman historian named Tacitus. This Roman historian actually says it very specifically, that Christus was crucified under or by Pontius Pilate. So that so really there is just universal religious and secular attestation to this fact. Jesus of Nazareth lived and he was crucified. Everybody say I got it. But we have to come back to the question. Since he did live and he was crucified, where is the dead man. The next, the, ne- the next, you see some hard work in the room today. Uh, the next question we have to answer is about the tomb. Our take, investigation takes us to a tomb outside the city of Jerusalem. Both secular and religious documents tell us this, that the, the governor of the region who worked for Rome, Pontius Pilate, According to all these records, he oversaw the execution and burial of Jesus of Nazareth. Understand, although it was from the the Jewish priests, demanded that Jesus' death and burial were sanctioned and overseen by the government. This was an official act. And those official records, both, both both the religious records and otherwise, tell us that Pontius Pilate oversaw the burial of Jesus. And then these documents here tell us that Pilate specifically ordered that Jesus' tomb be made as secure as possible. Remember, if anything was not true, it could have been fake. It could have been hashtag right away, right? Was it hashtag? No, not fake news. Good news. Someone say good news. So here's what they said on Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. The next day. The one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people he's been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. Here's Pilate. Ready? Here's the governor. Take a guard. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. Everybody say a guard. Now, I know that many of you might think that means one or perhaps more of you having seen your share of Easter plays. You think that means two guards. Right. Two guards. Well. That's not true. A, a guard, we, we're, actually, we're, not, we're not told the, the specifics, but we know enough from history that that meant at the, at the minimum there would have been four. There could have been a dozen, 16, there actually could have been as many as 50 stationed at the tomb. Guards. And when we say guards, we don't actually mean, uh, you know, guys that are ushers that dress up like Roman soldiers on the weekend. <laughs> Or guys in the youth group that beat up their friend, okay? They did that to me years ago. It was sad. Uh, they, the, we're, talking about, we're talking about Roman soldiers, that then these specific soldiers were trained to defend themselves of a, with a certain radius like this. They could de- defend themselves against an array of assailants. These were highly skilled soldiers. Their guard their job was to guard, to make, if you came this way, their job was to keep you from coming. And there was at least four, maybe 12, maybe many more. 
Then, over the tomb, they rolled a stone. The stone weighed between one and two tons. And they rolled it over the top. The, the tomb would have been somewhat like a, a hole like this. Not a hole in the ground like that, but a hole that was kind of leaning. And they would have rolled the stone on top of it like that. It would have been almost two tons. And the purpose was to make it a seal. Not a door, a seal. It wasn't... It, it wasn't in, it wasn't designed to become a, a, an eventual tourist attraction. It was designed to be permanent. Then they, then they put a seal over it, which means they took a leather strap and they put it over the rock like this and they stamped it in, with clay or uh, with wax and they put the seal of the governor on that. And anyone who broke that seal would immediately receive the death penalty. So you have guards, two-ton rock, and an official seal on a specific tomb. Someone say specific. In other words, this wasn't just random willy-nilly. This was a very specific tomb. But we have a problem. That specific tomb, we know that he was crucified. We know he was buried. We know it was in a government-sanctioned tomb with official guards and an official seal and documents and the whole thing. Do not trespass signs. But we have a problem. The problem is that tomb was discovered to become unguarded and empty. There's the mystery. There's the mystery. What happened? How did these, how do our, we have witnesses that come and find this, this very tomb Empty and unguarded. How do we explain this? How do we explain this empty tomb? The, the, the first claim that the tomb was, was empty was asserted by women who had come there. But listen to how the Bible describes it. This is what Luke, Luke describes. Luke chapter 23. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph, meaning Joseph of Arimathea, the one who had Jesus' body wrapped in linen and with over 100 pounds of spices and placed in this tomb. They followed Joseph to that tomb. And they saw the tomb. Say they saw the tomb. Saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the, the women took spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Where's the dead man? While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men clothed in, uh, in clothes that seemed like lightning or gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Then Peter and John, upon hearing this, rushed to the tomb, and each one of them gazed inside. John chapter 20. Here's what John says. Mary Magdalene came running to Simon Peter, and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, that's John talking about himself, okay? And the one that Jesus loved, a.k.a. I'm the Lord's favorite, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Who's they? Well, she thinks somebody else. Clearly, it wasn't her or the person they're talking to. They took him out. Of the, they've stolen his body. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb, both of them running, but the other disciple outran Peter. So John had fewer potatoes than Peter. I understand. John had less carbs. Okay. So John, where did I go? He outran, other disciple outran Peter. It's okay, he's probably a deadlifter. Uh, uh, outran Peter and reached the tomb first, but he bent over and looked in, and found strips of linen lying there, but did not going in, go in. Then Simon Peter, out of breath, came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, pushed John out of the way. Then he saw, he saw the strips of linen lying there that were wrapped around Jesus' body, 100 pounds of spices and linen lying there, as well as the cloth 
that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So if someone had come up out of that linen, and then taken that cloth off of someone's head, and then laid that cloth down and left the tomb. They even saw the grave clothes left behind by someone who did not need them anymore. There's only one reason why you wear grave clothes. If you are dead. Someone did not need them anymore. Oh, come back with the organ. By the way, If the body was stolen, they, let's just say it was that Raiders, that Indiana Jones, Laura Croft, whatever, Tomb Raiders, right? Ooh, let's let's raid the tomb. Why'd they leave all the expensive stuff? They left linens and 100 pounds of spices donated by a rich guy. They left them there. The only thing missing was a body. Where is the dead man? Well, what are some possible explanations of this empty tomb? How can we explain this? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe let's just start with the, the first one is this. Those ladies, forgive me, don't be fierce. Those ladies, they got a little emotional and they went to the wrong tomb. Well, they went to the <laughs> Lauren's all mad. <laughs> you know, like maybe they got, they didn't have the right direction. They got lost. They went to the wrong tomb. Okay, how many think that's maybe a good idea? That, oh, that solves it. They went to the wrong tomb. Wait, time out, time out. If they went to the wrong tomb, then all of the guards that were standing at the right tomb could have said, no, we're over here. And if they would have gone out and told everybody, look, the tomb's empty, the the Jews, the Romans, everybody could have said, the tomb's here. Wrong tomb. It's right here. Guess what happened? That never happened. Nobody ever said, wrong tomb. Really, all they could say was, aw, nuts. Or, or we could assume that, like, like Mary, we could assume that someone moved the body. Maybe the Jews or the Romans moved the body. That would make sense because they would, be, they would have been the only ones who could have moved the body. But the question is, those who could have, why would they have? Because for the body to not be where it was supposed to be only created big problems for them. They knew, he said, I'm, gonna be, I'm not going to be dead long. Their job was to make sure he stayed dead and where he's supposed to stay dead at. If the, if the Romans or the Jews knew where the body of Jesus was at any time, all they ever needed to do, guys, this is so simple, all they ever needed to do was present it. If they would have presented the dead body of Jesus of Nazareth, No one in this room, unless you were a serious history geek, you would have never even heard of Jesus. You'd have never known about him. The story would have disappeared. Because it would have been irrelevant. A nice guy died. Happens. But see, the problem was they couldn't find him. Those who had the power and the means to move the body didn't, and they wouldn't, and they couldn't produce it. So the question remains again, where is the dead man? Maybe, maybe it was those disciples. Maybe it was those disciples. Maybe somehow they were able to get to the body, even though they couldn't. But let's just say, let's give them, somehow they could. These are the only ones who would have moved the body would have been the disciples, but they didn't have the power to do so, or really the will. 
But here's the, here's the rumor that was spread right away. The rumor goes like this. The guards, all 4, 12, 16, or 50 of them, all of them were sleeping. Do I have any former, any veterans, any, any police persons or military persons? It, it, oh, okay. Uh, hallelujah. Um, not sure what that what exactly happened, but um, something good. Just, just a quick survey. If you're on guard duty, about how many of you are asleep all at the same time? Anyone? Anyone? I see a big goose egg back there. Uh, I asked the major earlier first service, and she looked at me very disgusted at the idea that all of the guards would be sleeping at once. Because that's clearly, that's clearly practice, right? But the idea was that all the guards were sleeping. And while they were all sleeping, these frail, hiding, Christ-denying, middle school girl afraid of, disciples somehow turned into ninjas and they stealthed their way to the tomb. They rolled the stone away very, very quietly so as not to wake up the guards. Then they removed the body and the guards knew this happened because they saw them do it while they were sleeping. You think that sounds silly? That's, the, that's the, what they said. That's our story and we're sticking to it. I suppose it's possible that they were trying to save embarrassment, that perhaps it's possible, we have to acknowledge this, that perhaps this small band of disciples somehow came and overpowered the troop of guards. That's right. The finest and, and fiercest and most feared fighting machine on earth at the time was totally overcome by a hand of youth pastors. One of them wearing a beanie and skinny jeans. Pausing to selfie. Hashtag guards. Well, friends, what we are left with is we are having a very, 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 very difficult time believing that anyone could have or would have moved the body. Those who could, wouldn't have. Those who would, couldn't have. Where's the dead man? Where is the dead man? Well, we turn to the only other claim that was offered at the time. The only other claim present at the time was that the reason this tomb is dead Dead. The reason this tomb is empty is because the man who was dead is alive. The claim is the tomb is empty because the former inhabitant has been raised from the dead. The claim is Jesus rose from the dead and that they saw him alive and that they saw him alive. Say it with me. And that they saw him alive. It wasn't just, well, the tomb is empty. He must be alive. Woo. It was, the tomb is empty, and we've seen him alive. The first record of this is, again, the first people to, to claim that they saw Jesus was alive were women. And that is presented as evidence. Now, today, that seems perfectly fine. But let's just say, if, if these disciples were trying, remember the big, the big conspiracy theory? If these disciples were trying to, 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 uh, to pass off some big conspiracy theory, they were trying to pass off some big lie to convince everybody, the absolute last thing they should have done is say, oh, we know he's alive because women saw him first. In their day, that would have been totally dismissed. Women's, women's testimony was not even accepted in court. Now, all the boos and all the hisses aside, it's not my idea. I'm just telling you the way it was. What I'm saying is that the Bible apparently selected the most uh, least credible witnesses to testify to the most important thing ever said. And that's good news for all of you this morning. That means any of you can and should testify that Jesus is alive.
This was their testimony. Then Jesus appears to other disciples. And it's interesting, Luke 24 tells us that Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he, he stops and he talks with them and explains to them about how the Messiah has to suffer and die. And they're thinking, wow, that's amazing. And then, then Luke tells us that he sits and he breaks bread with them. He breaks bread with them. And then their eyes are open. They recognize it's Jesus. And then suddenly he's gone. They run and tell the other disciples, hey, we just saw Jesus. And these full of faith, bold, strong, courageous disciples say, no, you didn't. We don't believe you. This is not a story concocted by people desperate to believe something. This is a story about truth that overcame all doubt. Finally, in John chapter 20, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Thomas himself eventually said, I, I will not believe until I see him. And he sees them, and then he places his own hands there. And finally, Thomas himself says, my Lord and my God. He recognizes he's not just talking to a man. And there are more accounts of this, and we'll mention them in just a moment. But so far, let's just call a timeout and say, hey, wait a minute. Just so far, as we have tried to just look for the evidence of the resurrection, we know this. There was a man who died, he died and he was placed in a specific tomb that was found empty. And there was a host of people who claimed to have seen him, touched him, talked with him, and even eaten with Jesus of Nazareth, the very man that they saw murdered, the very man that they now claim this man is no longer dead. And they don't claim that he's a ghost. They don't claim that he's sort of some sort of apparition. They claim that he's alive and he's eating with them. We have, we have only a few things left to say. We say, well, if that's true, if all of this is what people claim, how can we possibly explain that away? What are some possible alternatives to this being true? The first is, what, is that these, all of these people could be hallucinating. All of, the, all of them hallucinating. <laughs> all of them, yeah, and a lot of, one answer from the crowd is LSD, just passed around. All of them hallucinating. But here's the thing about hallucination. Hallucination happens to people who deeply long for something. Their minds produce an image of something that they crave and that they be, they're, they're so desperate to be true, their minds invent it. But that was not the case with any of the followers of Jesus. Their minds rejected all of it. They saw him dead and they knew he was. But then they saw him alive. And last I checked, there was one, there was one point where Jesus is standing on the shoreline and his disciples were out in the boat after his resurrection and he called to them from the shore and said come on in boys I've made breakfast last time I checked hallucinations don't make breakfast <laughs> the second option after if, if, if they weren't just all hallucinating and by the way we'll get to this in a minute but at one point up to 500 people saw Jesus at once so if they weren't hallucinating maybe, maybe the whole thing is a big fabrication a big lie. This is the broadest target the easily, that you can just easily dismiss it. See, the thing is, you can be, if you want to be lazy intellectually and just say, ah, it's just a lie, you're, you're, what you have chosen to do is just close your eyes and not look at facts. Because it's actually the least plausible of everything that, that, the, that hundreds of people got together and made this conspiracy. And who were they? They were, no, they, they were Nobel laureates, statisticians, powerful government employees, members of the military, Google giants. No. 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 Eleven average Joes, a former prostitute, and an aging carpenter's widow created and committed the conspiracy to beat them all. Forget Area 51. Forget the Illuminati. Don't even think about that Russians and Trump. This, this would have been the thing that, 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 that took them all. 
But again, here's the problem. Here's all the people that claim to see the risen Christ. The women who came to the tomb, Peter, the 11. Paul writes that a group of 500 people at once saw him alive, and they were still alive when Paul wrote that down. James, the brother of Jesus, who initially had totally rejected Jesus' claims to be Messiah, somehow, mysteriously, later, he becomes one of the strongest proponents of Jesus' resurrection. What happened? Then, then much later, there was, there was a lone Pharisee on a mission of rage whose life was turned around dramatically. A man named Saul of Tarsus, who also claimed to see this Jesus. We'll talk about him in more in just a moment. Is it possible that somehow you, you say, well, if they, if the, all of these people, if all of these people that claim to see Jesus, what was, in, what would have been in it for them? What would be their gain? Were they set to gain fame or fortune or power? No, because they would forfeit all of it. To claim this man was alive would cost them their lives. Are you feeling that? To claim that Jesus was alive would cost them theirs. Most of them would lose everything. Many of them would face intense persecution. Many of them would face unspeakable torment. They would be skinned alive, stoned, sawed, burned, beheaded, boiled in oil, and crucified themselves. Because, specifically because, they claimed to be witnesses of a living Christ. And no one, no one let the cat out of the bag. Do you know why? There was no cat. No one gave up and told the secret because there wasn't one. Every single one of them, to a person, time and time again, all they would ever say is this. We can only speak of what we have seen and heard. We are witnesses of these things. One third option. One third option. I know it's, you would think, oh, it's the one I'm waiting for. No, there's one more. It's even dumber. It's called the swoon theory. Anybody ever heard of the swoon theory? Here's the swoon theory. I'll say it quickly for time's sake. The swoon theory is this. Jesus didn't really die. That he was betrayed. He was beaten with the cat of nine tails to his body face, total oblivion. He was crucified, which was designed to be death by asphyxiation and pain. He gave up his breath. He died on the cross. He was so dead that the soldiers wouldn't even break his legs because they saw he's clearly dead. But then just to make sure, one of them rammed a spear through his side and blood and water spilled out, therefore indicating that his heart and the wall around it had been punctured. He was laid inside the tomb wrapped in 100 pounds of linen and spices. And then laid inside the tomb, a massive two-ton rock placed over the top of it and guard stationed outside. And then, after he'd got a little rest, a a little power nap will do you good, I've heard, right? Apparently, in the warm, tender comfort of that rocky tomb, Jesus awoke from all of that. Shook off 100 pounds of spice and linen unwrapped his head cover, marched the uphill climb to the entrance of the tomb, and he, and he, put, and he placed his nail-pierced hands upon that two-ton rock and shoved it off. Then, using his Krav Maga, <laughs> that's the Israeli fighting style. Yeah. Using his Krav Maga, He overpowered the 4, 12, 16, or 50 Roman guards by himself. Perhaps three or four of them were just frightened by his appearance. Then he walked naked back to Galilee, but of course stopped along the way and got clothes to fit him like they do in the movies. 
appeared to his disciples in such glorious manner that they all, to a person, gave their lives in horrible deaths because he was so inspiring and then slipped away never to be seen again. The only, there have been a few times where that, that theory has been proffered, but it's only always ended in abject humiliation. Hallucination doesn't make sense. Fabrication doesn't make sense. Resuscitation doesn't make sense. What else are we going to do? There's really only one viable conclusion. If you eliminate these other possibilities, there's only one left. Regardless of how impossible it may seem, regardless of how improbable it may seem, regardless of how much it, it will challenge your worldview, regardless of how much it will challenge you to decide A or B, is Jesus Lord or is he not? There's only one conclusion left, and that is that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Because there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified and was buried in a tomb. And that tomb was found empty. And there were multiple immediate firsthand witnesses to his resurrection. No body was ever produced. And not one witness had ever recanted seeing Jesus, not even in the face of torture. It is like that these, it's almost as if these people had somehow met face-to-face with someone who had defeated death, and now they had no more fear of it. And beyond that, how else do you explain? How else do you explain the man whose, whose secular history knows as Saul of Tarsus, a man who was on his way to power and prestige in the Jewish religion, there is no rational historical explanation for this man who, who, who is Saul of Tarsus who suddenly, inexplicably became an entirely different man and gave his life. What he used to persecute, he now began to preach. And in his own words, it's because he saw Jesus. Something happened. Paul found out something about that dead man and it changed his life and it will change yours. It will change yours if you will put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you'll surrender, if you'll turn from your own path of rage, your own path toward Damascus, whatever path you've been on, and you'll surrender like Paul and say, my Lord, my Lord, if you'll call him Lord, you'll surrender your life to him, he'll change your life, and there will be people in your life that won't be able to explain the change that happened to you, but Jesus will save you, he will turn your life around, he will make your life different, he will save you not only for today, but for eternity. And you too can live with no fear of death. How else do you explain, even after that, the countless souls who have given their lives in surrender? People who have given their lives for centuries. People who have given up everything because they believe something true about this man that they said was dead. People for 20 centuries have found hope and life and freedom and healing, and forgiveness because they discovered something about this dead man. And they discovered that the only answer to the question, where is the dead man, is this. He is risen. Come on, say it with me again. He is risen. We are witnesses to these things, the apostles said in Acts 5.32, and so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself is here right now in this room. I don't, as much as I hoped and I worked hard to try to craft words that could be persuasive, our ultimate hope, our ultimate evidence of a living Christ is a very present Holy Spirit. He convinces our hearts. He works in our life. And Holy Spirit, we ask you now again to convince our hearts we ask you for affirmation, for conviction. I ask you now, sweet Spirit of God, to wrestle with every heart in this room, every, every heart watching online. May you bring us all this morning to a, a place of fresh conviction about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's, there are only two appropriate ways we can respond to an empty tomb. 
One of them is gratitude. The other is repentance. We either give thanks for something that we know to be true. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. I've known it. I've known it since I was a little boy. I've known he was alive. I've known he was alive because he lived in me. But oh boy, how I enjoyed learning that it wasn't just my inside that knew it, that I could learn the, the evidence of history, the Bible, that there was reason, there was testimony, there was fact to support what I already knew. But it didn't start there. It started because the Holy Spirit witnessed it in my heart. The Holy Spirit will witness to your hearts today. He will breathe upon truth, make it come alive in your heart like a fire. Today. Today, you can surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you have not, today, you can say, Jesus, you are stronger. Save me. Would you stand across this room right now? Launch your head bowed, please, in a moment of prayer. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that prayer. I want it to be as simple, as simple as you can. If today you do not know that Jesus is your Savior, you would know. If you have, you'd know. You would know that you know that you know. But if you do not know, if you have not said to the Lord Jesus, Lord, save me because you are stronger. Save me from my sin. Save me from death. Save me from it all. Give my life to you, Jesus. Come on. With your head bowed across this room, I want it right now. If that's you this morning, if you'll say, hey, Dad, would you pray for me before we leave today? I want Jesus to save me. He already has. It's up to you to accept it. You'll say, hey, today I accept salvation. I accept what Christ has done for me. I receive it. Lord, save me. Would you lift up your hand? Shoot it up right now. Just shoot it up right across this room. Just say, Lord, save me. Come on, lift up your hand. Just say, Lord, save me. I'm a candidate for good news today. Lord, save me. Don't let, don't, I know sometimes you say you're wrestling with it. I'm not sure what it might mean to people and other things. The only thing you need to be concerned about is how you're going to answer the Lord when you stand before him. This is the one question he's going to have. Have you said, Lord, save me? Lord, save me. Father in heaven, we pray now in the name of Jesus for those who would be in this room hearing my voice and those who are participating with us over the internet. Lord, let all of us today freshly say, Lord, save me. Would you all say it with me? Lord, save me. Lord, thank you that you are stronger. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus is Lord and that every knee will bow and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We thank you today that sin and death have been overcome. And we thank you that nothing is impossible. And we thank you that we have a message that Jesus is alive.